Friends, the past few months, we've been looking at this book of Ephesians. I know I've been saying that a lot, but I've just been loving it. I've been loving it. Like, I've never spent so much time with so little scripture. And it's been working its way deeper and deeper in my life, understanding how Paul approaches life, how the best life he could think of is his letter of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 is the ideal theological life. Who are we in Christ? How does that shape our spiritual identity? And then chapters 4 through 5 is that ideal Christian life lived out. How, who, how we are or who we are shapes what we do. Who we are in Christ shapes what we do. And Paul wraps this whole section up with verses 521. And he wraps up with who we are and what we do with who we spend our time with. And so a few, last week we talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit again and again and again. We talked about what it looks like to have these spirit-filled relationship, spirit-filled life guiding our day-to-day uh, actions, our day-to-day, what we do with our time and how we spend it, what we do with our mind, how do we accomplish this change that Paul is talking about? It's all through the empowering and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5:21 says this. It says, "Furthermore, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ." And so this is also a beginning and an end. Paul, last week we talked about how Paul said, don't be drunk, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Singing hymns and songs, he says, go right into worship. You're filled with the Holy Spirit, go into worship. And then he ends that thought with this thought, and so submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ending that thought. But then Paul begins one last conclusion to this section on how we live our lives out. Who we are shapes what we do, which shapes how we spend the time with the people around us. And Paul identifies six relationships that most of us will spend the majority of our lives in. From this point all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul identifies six main relationships in your life. And he gives practical advice to each of them. He's saying, if spirit-filled people, you must have spirit-filled relationships. And so he gives practical tips to the husbands and to the wives, to parents and to children and employees and employers. Today we're going to take a closer look at husbands and wives and what it means to have a spirit-filled relationship the way that God intended this relationship. But before we get into it, before we start talking about husbands do this and wives do this, I want to broaden the view our view of what marriage is. Whenever we get to these scriptures, and I think I've taught on these scriptures two or three times now at this point, whenever we get to these scriptures, so much of our time or so much of our attention gravitates to the do's and the don'ts and the sticky word of submission to wives. And we spend a lot of our time talking about that. We spend very little time talking about verses 31 and 32. So before we get to the do's and the don'ts, and we will get to that, these practical tips on how to best love our partners, I want to talk about verse 31 and 32. These verses are important because if you focus on the first thing, these first, you realize that your marriage, your relationship is much bigger than just the two of you. Your marriage is much more than just two people getting along. Do you realize what our marriages could be or what they're supposed to be, what they're intended to be? Verse 31 says, as the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two are united into one. 
This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. Biblical marriages, our marriages are a grand metaphor for the way that Jesus and the church interact. Your marriage has the potential to be a reflection of the sacrificial love and the all-out selfless following and devotion of his church. When people look at you while you're shopping, while you're getting groceries, how the husband and the wife, how they talk to each other, how they treat each other, your marriage has the potential to be a reflection of the eternal love of the Father. Your marriage has the divine goal, and you are invited into this to be something bigger than just getting along and making a life together. There's more to your marriage than just making each other better, although that's good. There's more to your marriage than just making each other happy. It's finally securing a plus one to weddings and to the company picnic parties. More than just having success or to procure wealth or to have someone sit with you during sickness. Your marriage is more than just building a life together or having children and raising a family or creating a home or saving up for retirement. Your marriage is much more than a warm back on a cold night or a buddy to rewatch reruns of The Office or Seinfeld. It is much more than a place, just a place, to find physical, emotional, and spiritual fulfillment. A biblical marriage, your marriage, is a literal reflection of the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't know if that sunk in. Your marriage is a picture of the gospel. Your marriage, we had the Senior Connect this week, and Jack and Judy were celebrating 60 years of living together. 60 years. In the terms of eternity, 60 years is nothing. And right now in our society, we applaud that. That's an incredible accomplishment and feat. But in the terms of eternity, it comes and goes. But your marriage is much bigger than just lasting 60 years, even as great of an accomplishment as that is. I started calculating in my head. If, I, if we last 60 years, can I even get that old? Probably not how I'm eating right now. I might need to adjust some things. But it's possible. But when people look at your marriage, when you're out and about doing normal, everyday things, your marriage has the potential to show the love and the devotion relationship, the eternal relationship of Jesus and his church. When people look at your marriage, they can see the Father's love in your relationship. When people look at your marriage, they could literally see Jesus and his devoted church following him. That's the potential that your marriage can have. It's much, much more about just doing the dishes and paying the bills and making it to, through the holidays. It has such bigger significance than that. We did really good, hopefully, just a week ago. Valentine's Day came. It's now passed. Husbands, hopefully, we went out there and we made our wives feel special. Hopefully, unlike me, you didn't stop at Jewel on the way home because you forgot that to get flowers or chocolate for your wife. Every year, we have this constant reminder to make sure to show your wife that she is loved and special. But today, Paul, we're looking at this 
practical advice that Paul gives husbands and wives of how to create a loving relationship with each other beyond just the significant, culturally pushed up and pressured moments to show your wife that you love her. And that's what we're getting into today. Hopefully all of this is raising two questions in our minds today. Is my marriage, is our marriages, are they representing this gospel, this good news of Jesus? If not, how do we begin to foster and nurture these God-intended marriages? And if they are, how do we keep them going? And that's what we're going to be answering today. And before we go any farther, I just want to stop and pray one more time. Because this kind of message and this kind of talk has the potential to stir up a lot of negative emotions in us. It has the potential to be miscommunicated, misunderstood. And so I just want to pray for you right now. And so if you're with your partner, just grab their hand. If not, just put your hand over your heart. But Lord, right now, would you just intercede on our behalf, Father? Would you begin speaking to each person in here and online, God, that's listening? Would you begin speaking to us exactly what we need to hear? Words of encouragement, words of comfort, words of peace, words of hope. Whatever we need to hear right now, God, whatever season of life we are in, Holy Spirit, come and speak to us right now. In Jesus' name. So how do we have this gospel-centered relationship? How do we have these marriages that, that show people and push people, people that are far from God? If they look at our marriage, they can say, I don't believe in God, but whatever that is, I want that. How do we have those things? Paul's answer, answer to this, focus on our God-given gender roles in marriage. To our Midwestern sensibilities, I just said that, and your neck hairs probably began to prickle a little bit. You're like, no, 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 no. I don't want to talk about that. Words like genders and roles and submission, they all feel religiously uncomfortable because of how the church has abused it, how people have abused it over the years. Doing a quick uh, Google search, there's this growing trend in the church that believers, Christian believers, believe that gender roles in marriage were part of the fall. That before the fall, Adam and Eve were equal. And we'll talk a little bit about that, more about that later. But what they mean when they say this is that there was no responsibility to authority. That Adam and Eve could do what they wanted. That real freedom is just letting somebody go and have no responsibility to another person. No accountability. But that is a perversion of freedom. When you see the word freedom in the Bible, usually it's linked to indebted servitude. I'll become a slave for Christ. I will become a slave to righteousness. When you lead somebody through a prayer of salvation, usually there's a line in here, Jesus, come and be the Lord and the Savior, the King of my life. What are you doing? You are submitting yourself to an authority above you. Freedom is not just being able to go and do whatever you want. Freedom is living within the boundaries of the hierarchy of authority that's in place so that you can live the maximum amount of your life. Freedom looks like this. If you have kids in the front yard and you tell the kids, don't go play in the street. And you have some kids that are incredibly scared. So you say that, whoops, I'm going to destroy things. And they stand all the way here. They say, I, I'm going to stand right here by the house because I'm so scared of what could be out there in the street. And then you tell some kids that and you, they say, okay, don't play in the street. So I will go all the way to the line of the street. 
and I will do as much as I can before I fall and possibly get hurt. But boundaries in relationships to allow true freedom is to put a fence up. And so the kids can know they can come and press and get as close as they want because in this yard, you are free to live your best life. There is safety in this yard if you live within the boundaries of this yard. The fence protects you from the dangers out there and allows you to live the most of your life. And gender roles in a biblical marriage are God's way of putting up fences or boundaries that we can live and thrive in relationships. Hopefully you're still with me. We're going to talk more about this. Stick with me. This is good, okay? I tr just trust. Don't trust me. Trust the scripture. The word submit in the Greek is, is hypotasso. Can you say hypotasso? I'm definitely not saying that right. I just misled all of you, but it's okay. Don't worry about it. This word hypotasso can be translated to mean to yield, to respect, to defer, to put another person's good ahead of my own. And it's all throughout the New Testament. Children are called to submit to parents. Followers of Jesus are called to submit to the elders or the authority in the church. Citizens are called to submit to governmental authority, and angels are called to submit to God. When we strip this away from the Bible and we don't look at this in the roles, and you look at our culture, our culture is built on the idea of submission. When I go to eat at Chili's, I wear a shirt and pants and shoes because there's a sign that says, no shoes, no shirt, no service. And I wear pants because that's the kind of above-the-top kind of person I am. You say, no, I'll just put on pants for you too. Don't worry about it. I go to the grocery store. I load up my cart with groceries, healthy stuff, Jeff, like broccoli and kale and definitely not oatmeal cream pies, Trish, right? And I go do that, and I go to the, uh, I go to the checkout. There's somebody in front of me. I stand behind them. I unload my groceries, and then I pay for those groceries. Why? Because the system of authority in place says that's the rules around me, and I submit to the governing rules around me. Our society is built on submission, and so is God's world. Submission has to do with order, not with worth or value. Hear that again. Submission has to do with order, not with worth or value. So often we heard the word submit and we think of UFC. We think of uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a, a, a form of martial arts all about trapping somebody, forcing them to tap out, to submit to you, to win by submission, not a KO. Culturally, when I think of how the word submission has been taken out of context, I think of an abuse of power, of people dominating someone with their own force, making them do what you want. But submission is not making somebody do what you want. Submission is voluntary compliance with a hierarchy of authority. Submission can never be forced on another person. It must be freely given. Submission that is forced or coerced is an abuse of power and is dominance over somebody, not submission. Submission is a gift, and it can only be given of the giver's own free will. I'd actually like to show you roles in the Bible before Ephesians 5, the, the, the verses that Paul is working out of. And so we're going to flip to Genesis chapter 3. And this is Adam and Eve, the original marriage, the original relationship in the Bible. And this is, we're skipping forward a little bit to where the serpent 
is beginning to speak to Eve. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did, did God really say to you, you must not eat the fruit from any of these trees in the garden? Of course may we eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. You will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And the question I have for you out of this is which gender is responsible for bringing sin into the world? Go ahead and poke your wife and say Eve's fault. Go ahead and poke your husband and say, uh, I guess it's my fault. No, I'm just kidding. Don't say that. <laughs> For a long time, the sixth grade Josh, myself, has told my sisters and my friends of saying, you guys messed it up for all of us. What are you doing? But years later, I realized verse 6 where it says she gave some to her husband who was with her. This year, or this week, I did something that I've not thought to do before. Is I looked up and thought, biblically, who does God put the blame on for bringing sin into the world? If you look at the New Testament, 2 Timothy talks about the, the Eve, but he says she was deceived. You look at Romans chapter 5, and Paul says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Eve was deceived, but Adam was the one whose action brought sin into the world. Why is that? Eve ate it first. Eve seduced Adam. She used her womanly wiles on him. It's her fault. Why is it Adam's fault? Adam's fault. Because Adam's role in the garden was to be the caretaker of the garden. Go and, and, and assert yourself over the earth. Rule. And when God introduced Eve to him, he said, here is your help meet. Here is the person, the strong, it's the, the strength behind you to do this task. Adam's role in the garden and in his family was to be the leader, the protector, the provider, the sustainer. It was Adam's responsibility to step in and to say, Eve, this is not the way we want to go. It was Adam's responsibility to say, serpent, be quiet and get behind me. It was Adam's responsibility to stop his family from moving down a path that was opposite and far from what God wanted him to do. It is his God-given role in the marriage, which is to protect and to sustain and to lead his marriage. Why doesn't the Bible give the blame to Eve? Because it was Adam's role to protect his wife. But Adam has done what many, many men have done, which is to sit passively by and to put authority onto other people to lead our families and to lead our lives. What Adam did was to sit passively by and say, woman, you be the spiritual leader in our house. What Adam did was to sit passively by and say, grandmother, grandfather, you raise my children. What Adam did was to sit passively by and he said, you go and work and provide for me. What Adam did is 
he gave up his God-given responsibilities to protect his family, to lead them to things that are righteous and true, and to protect them from anything that would lead them away far from God. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Many think that the, the, the roles came out of this were because of the curse. Verse 14, it continues a little bit farther along. It says, Then the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic, uh, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly, groveling the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. You will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. To the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of the fruit, whose fruit I command you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the earth from which you were made. From you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Notice the two places and the two things that are cursed in this passage. The deceiver is cursed, and the ground is cursed. But Eve is not cursed. Her role, part of the things that she already does, her, her ability to be able to procreate life was before the fall and is still there too. Her ability to have a relationship with her husband is still there. But things that once were easy, once came naturally, once came painlessly, are now sharpened and are hard to achieve. Adam was not cursed. Adam working was not cursed. But the ground that he would have to work is now cursed. Once when he could go to any tree and pluck fruit from it, once when he could go and fulfill and sustain his family, he was able to do that without breaking a sweat. Now he's going to have to die by working as hard. He's going to have to work his whole life until he dies. His God-given role was sharpened and hardened, but he was not cursed in that role. Adam, before the fall, was still supposed to go and work the land. But it's harder now. The intimacy that Adam and Eve once shared with God was as easy as God coming down and walking with them in the cool of the evening, speaking to him face to face. Now think of the struggles that it has taken us, you, to get to this very place. All the distractions, all the things we have to put aside, all daily, the battles to fight all of the temptations in our life to just seek God's presence. I don't know about you, but seeking God's presence doesn't come easy to me. It's something I have to intentionally work after to pursue. And so the roles that we have in marriage are, are not curses. They're just hard. They're still part of God's intended order so that man and wife might thrive. So that man and wife's relationship might be a reflection of God's relationship to the church. What once was easy is now hard. But it does not mean quit trying. And so husbands, this is the due portion of today's sermon. Ephesians 5, 26, 29. Husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. 
He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to represent her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cared for the church. And so practically, husbands, potential husbands, here's three tips to fostering the marriage that God intended for your life. Number one is lead your house. We read all these verses, and oftentimes our, our minds get stuck on the words wives submit to husbands. But in Jesus' time, that would not have been the, the verses that stuck out. The verses that would have stuck out to the audience that Jesus was speaking to would have been the men. Men, take care of your wives. Take care of my wife. Women in the culture that Jesus was speaking to were commodities. My responsibility to my wife is to feed her and to offer her seed to have offspring. And then my responsibility is done. Jesus talks about later, he says, don't divorce your wife. Moses gave you a rule about it because of the hardness of your heart. Because you see that in Jesus' time, men could go to their wife for literally any reason and give them a certificate of divorce. And men would strip them of all their financial stability, all their security, everything that they had to protect their lives. Women had no rights in Jesus' time. And so this free-range living that men enjoyed in this time, they would have heard this word and saying, you're tying me to her? I have to do something around the house? I don't think so. I don't want to be a part of that. And if you look at this amount of scripture, three verses to the women, nine verses to the men, Paul is spending the majority of his time exhorting the men to be the husbands. Get up and lead your family. Men, you are the leader of your house. You are the provider and the spiritual protector. But somewhere down the line, we got this confused with make our wives submit to us. Nowhere in Scripture is Paul saying that. Remember, again, submission is never something to coerce or to take from somebody. It is a free gift freely given. Our role in our, in our houses and to our wives is to focus on our role. Let your wife worry about her participation in the marriage between her and God. Your role is not to worry about, well, I'm trying to lead this, but my wife's not doing this. My wife should be doing this more and more. Your role is to focus on you. First and primarily, your role is to lead the house. You are the man of the household. Too often this translates as my way or the highway, in my house, my rules, and other prideful statements like that. But what it looks like in practicality, a spirit-filled relationship is, are you the one that's responsible for the spiritual health in your relationship? Are you the one that's promoting healthy spirit relationships in your house? Are you the one that's promoting spirituality in your house? Are you the one that's saying, it's Sunday and we're going to church? It's Wednesday, I'm driving you to youth group. Honey, can we start today with our Bible? Honey, can we pray together today? Or honey, I am praying for you. I prayed over you and I prayed over the kids. Husbands, if, if we were serving our wives and leading them to how that Paul is talking about, our wives would have no problem submitting to us. If we were loving them as sacrificially as Jesus loved the church, you see the church wholeheartedly sell themselves out to follow Jesus. 
Why? Because they felt completely cared for, secured, and trusted. I need to go faster. I'm sorry. Lead your house. Make her feel special. Guys, every day your wife is waking up and she's asking this internal question, does my husband love me? Does he still find me attractive? Does he see me? Husband, your wives do not want more physical intimacy with you. That's not the thing that they're asking for every day. Do I love her? I love her. I'll show her how much I love her. No, that's not what they're asking for. What your wife is looking for is for affirmation, verbal affection. She wants to know that you find her beautiful. She wants to know that you are thinking about her while you're working. Even if you're not, set a reminder on your phone to say, text my wife on my lunch break that I am thinking about you. She wants to know that you still see her, that you care about her, that you think about her. So husband, make your wife feel special. Do this by finding little ways to tell her. Write her a note. Send her a text. Say, hey, honey, I'm coming home. Here's Chipotle. I'm taking the kids to McDonald's for an hour and a half. Jump in the bath. Here's some time to yourself. Husbands, if you're struggling with this... <laughs> All the time I've been up here preaching, and that's the first time somebody said, keep preaching. <laughs> Wonderful. Great. Husbands, if you struggle with this, like I struggle with it. I think how many times can I say to her that I love her? She knows I, you know, I bought her flowers on Valentine's Day. Like, uh, <laughs> what else can I do? Ask your wife, honey, you are the most special woman to me on all of earth. Can you help me? to know how to tell you that? What are the things that I've done in our relationship that have made you feel super loved? What are the things I've done in our past that you still think about? And then one last thing, husbands, is think about the ways that your wife shows you affection. That's the ways that she wants to feel loved. Come on, she's showering you with praise. She's telling you how great you are. She loves that you just do this and loves that you do that. She writes you notes, she fixes your lunch. Whatever, I don't know the ways that it works in relationship, but think of the ways that your wife shows you affection and then reverse it and do that back to her. Because so many times we like to show our wives, we try to love them how we feel loved. I took the trash out. I went to work this week. Like I paid the bills. Don't you know I love you? But your wife is asking you to make her feel loved, make her feel special how she feels special, how she feel loved. So ask her. And lastly... Amy, you can start making your way up. Husbands, Paul says to love your wife like you love yourself. Be intentional with this. If we loved our wives with the same intentionality and, the same, and put the same effort and time as we do into our collections, into our grass, into the politics or reading or to sports or to fishing trips or to whatever else, I can, if my wife told me she was going away for a weekend, I have no problem filling my time. I'm going to buy a steak for breakfast. I'm getting double pizza. I'm buying going to coffee with the guys, whatever. I can go golfing all weekend. I have no problem. Spend just as much time as you spend on yourself, as, as easy as it comes. Spend, exert that energy towards your wife. Begin to love her as you love yourself. And your marriage will blossom. It'll thrive. It'll grow and it will reflect, husbands, when you begin to take the lead in your house, your marriage will become and begin to grow into reflection of Jesus Christ and his church.
Amen? Women, I know that you've just been anticipating, waiting for me to tell you to submit to your husbands. And as fun as that would be, I've actually instead invited my wife to come and speak to us instead. So can you just give it up for my wife, Amy? So we're going to be in Ephesians 5, 21 through 24. It says, Further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Um, I once had a job for almost a solid year. I had no idea who my boss was. And this was chaotic. Who made the decisions around here? No idea. Who do I go to for clarification? I don't know. Where do my timesheets get turned in? Not a clue. This was madness. All good systems need a point person. And God created that point person in a marriage to be the husband. His God-ordained purpose was to lead the family. And women, our job is to honor that. We do that by taking that placard and stamping it firmly next to our husband's name. We pray for God to show us the potential that he birthed within our husbands, and we call that forth and we call that out. We honor them when they walk in alignment with their calling, and when um, they fall short, we lovingly believe the best for them. So let's get practical, and let's be honest. All of this would be super easy if we were married to an idealized, sinless man who does no wrong and loves us bountifully. But you're not in that marriage, and I'm not in that marriage. Almost. Um, and if we expect to be, we would benefit from realigning our expectations. Because here's the thing, even if your husband read the five love languages, spent an hour on his knees every morning, and thought of you every single moment of the day, he would still fail you. And this primes us for resentment. Satan uh, rubs together his greedy little hands as he can now assault our minds with every petty reason that we can hang on to bitterness, every reason why we have the right to pity ourselves. Every fault of our spouse can be tattooed on our mind as a reason to resent them. And this is where submission enters. This enters um, loving our husband more than our resolve to be angry. We can submit or yield by letting the anger fall from our eyes, let your stubborn resolve translate to prayer. Let our irritations become invitations to lean on God. If your husband's constantly getting on your nerves, wow, you're going to become such a powerful woman of prayer. Um, and here's what happens. When we realize that God is the only one who can fulfill our deepest longing, the only one who can love us wholly and purely, we then turn to him as we rightly should for the type of love that we need and desire. Now we're free to simply love our husbands. We are whole, we are secure, we are loved, and now we're invited to pour the overflow of that love into our marriage. We pray for him, we love him, we honor him, and that honor and respect is a big part of it. Regardless of what your husband's love language is, he needs to know that you believe in him. 
And we prepare ourselves for this type of love through prayer. We pray for our husbands and we ask God to show us who he is becoming. And then we become the biggest cheerleader on his journey of becoming. A few years ago, I discovered elderberry syrup. I noticed how the duration of our cold seemed to lessen as we would take it. And I there before I became a big fan. I believed in it so much that apparently I told everybody. Uh, people from work, people from church would send me pictures of their elderberry syrup after my endorsement. You see, my devoted belief uh, propelled others to believe in something too. Conviction can be contagious. How I see this playing out in marriage is for me to have an unwavering belief in who God created Josh to be. And the minute he doubts himself, I swoop in not with elderberry spiel, but my Josh spiel. I don't sit down with him and highlight his every fault. I don't join in the discussions at work about how men are idiots. I don't call up my BFFs and bemoan how annoying Josh is. If he has a fault that he's blind to and it's harmful, I will lovingly tell him. But then I don't let it become something I pick at again and again. That is demoralizing. What I believe and speak over Josh, he is going to start to believe. So when he does something awesome, I acknowledge it. And when he misses the mark, I don't berate him. I don't make him feel small. I build him up with my words. What I believe he can become, he will become. But before we start getting puffed up into thinking that we women are shaping our men, no. We are simply agreeing with what God is ordaining and getting out of the way. We are saying yes and amen instead of you, silly man. Women, let's be uh, not of this world's culture that likes to belittle men. Let's not let the poison of our selfishness and pride spill out into our marriage and relationships. Let us love and honor what God has blessed us with. Instead of going against what God is refining, let's agree and bless what God is doing, even if we can't see it. Let's continuously shower our husband with a God-aligned definition of who he is. Josh, I love how you serve our family. Thank you for leading us with integrity. Thank you for taking time to be with our kids. You're such a man of integrity, of virtue, of intentionality and love. Speak it again and again and again. Let our words and actions toward our husbands be mirrors through which they see themselves. And when those words fall on deaf ears, when they aren't received because he's feeling unworthy, we remind them that today's struggles do not define tomorrow's victories. We serve a God who made us from a rib. He made a self-proclaimed stutterer, a leader, a murderer, a king, an old man, a father of nations. And the list goes on and on and on. Don't let your attitude and the way that you treat your husband be used as weapons of the enemy against the good work that God is doing in him. So lives, let's yield, let's honor, and let our yielding and honoring be avenues to partner with what our great God is doing. It's easy to, in this moment to feel like, well, that's great. <clears throat> the pastors have a great marriage. Good for them. <laughs> but you don't know what I got at home. <laughs> Guys, I can't tell you. I cannot speak for myself. Nobody knows the failures that I've had in my life like Amy. 
Nobody knows all the ways I feel as a husband, as a pastor, as a father, as just a follower, as just a decent, nice person. You know, I can't tell. <laughs> There's so many times that Amy says, Josh, just don't forget you're a pastor. Maybe lighten up on the wheel there, okay? <laughs> but again and again, my wife has just been such a good product of speaking who I I'm supposed to be, who God says I am to me. I know this isn't who you are. You're a good father. Did you see how I just treated the kids? Self-loathing, the self-hate, the frustration, the anger. Yeah, I know. That's not who you are. And she speaks that to me. I am a better person. I am in many ways the person I am because of my wife's respect. Husbands, this week, can we make our wives feel so incredibly special? Can the marriages and church in the rock be a reflection of the gospel? Can they be, can our wives feel like there is no other woman on earth? Can we give as much time as we give to our grass and to our lawnmowers and to our, and to our driveways as we do to loving our wives? And wives, can we this week let our husbands know that we believe in them? that we believe in who God says they are and who they are becoming, not just who they are in this moment. Because our sins don't define us, friends. God's word over you defines us. It says, I threw your sins, your failures, as far as the east is from the west. I forget your iniquity. And this is not easy. This is the hardest relationship, the longest lasting relationship that you will have in your life. And you have to work at it every single day day. Husbands, every day, your wife's asking, do you love me? Do you cherish me? Do you think I'm beautiful? And you can do all the things. And you know what happens at midnight? Craig Yoshel says that at midnight, the clock resets and you get to do it again. One time's not enough. Wives, we husbands, we mess up every single day and nobody knows us as good as us as you do. We need, we are weak we want to believe we're failures. We want to hate ourselves. We want to run away. We want to give the God-given position to have authority and leadership to anybody else that will take it. And we need your support to say, you can do it. You're the husband that I chose. You're the husband that God gave me. You're the father for my kids. You're the provider for this house. You can do it. We need wives that believe in us. Let's be those people this week. This is not easy. Amy and I are not a product of just our own work. Throughout the time and throughout the years, we have invited people into our relationships. We've invited people into our community, people that we could trust, people that we could speak to, people that we could say, hey, I am doing this really poorly. Hey, I really messed up. How, how are you doing at loving your wife? How are you doing at being a father? How are you doing Friends, we're about to go into a time of small group. Get into community. Maybe you're in a relationship right now that is struggling. And you're like, that all sounds great, but I don't think that's even possible for us. Invite other people alongside you to lift you up to be the person you're supposed to be. There is on Wednesday nights a group, the Quirks and the Masseys are leading a, a, a specific group for marriages. What's the difference between an amazing marriage and a bad marriage? We all have the same amount of time. 
How much time do they devote to their marriage? How much time could you begin to devote to your marriage? Find childcare. Take the time off of work. Show up. Make it a priority that we will show up at group. We will read the book together. We will do the work so that we feel loved, so that our marriage isn't just, just getting by, but that we could thrive, that we can look at our marriage and say, there's life in it. It's doing something. It's greater than just me, and it's more than just getting along. It has eternal purpose and value to it, friends. Your marriage is a reflection of the church. I'm going to run like two minutes long, guys. Just stay with me. You know, there's a book called Hosea in the Bible. It's a picture of of God and his people and the brokenness that that there is. The anger and the frustration on God and and, and the the, uh, lack of uh, relationship on his people's end. But God again and again pursues us. God again and again pursues us. And if you work at your marriage, if you work at pursuing each other, if you work to make her feel special and work to make him believe that you believe in him, your marriage will begin to thrive. Invite other people into it. Go to the website, go to the app and sign up for a group. I'm, uh, there's another group at Clayton Oates in Hannah's house that's for young families with kids. Go and get into community. There's Thursday nights post-encounter where the women and the men gather together. There's community here, but it's up to you to jump into it. And this is the last thing I I just want to end with this, friends. Is that remember all of this is coming out of the context of a spirit-filled people. This is not meant to be something you can do on your own. It is by the empowering movement and the empowering, God's empowering presence in you that you're able to have a spirit-filled relationship. And that looks as simple as this. Holy Spirit, come. May this be a new moment today, right now. May you begin to right the years of wrongs. May you begin to erase the harsh words and the actions that hurt me. Would you begin to be able to help me focus on me and not focusing on them doing their part? Would you do a new thing in me and a new thing in my marriage? Holy Spirit, come. And so right now, church, would you just stand right now? And would you put your hands up right now just in front of you like this? Almost as if somebody was giving you a gift. Would you just begin to pray right now? Holy Spirit, would you come fresh on me? Holy Spirit, would you just come and give me the marriage that I deeply desire? Holy Spirit, would you begin to make me the wife that I'm called to be? Would you help me to be the leader and the husband I'm called to be? God, would you begin to do a work in Church on the Rock? Would you begin to help us to be able to foster love, create an environment of peace? Would we be able to be something that people look at and desire and want to have? Jesus, would you be in our families? Lord, help us to be able to put aside every distraction. Help us to be able to overcome the obstacles. Help us to be able to crush the serpent's head, to shut his mouth. Holy Spirit, come. Fall on me afresh. Lord, any discouraged heart right now, any person that's given up on hope, God, would you begin to just fill them right now, Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, come. Friends, I just want to invite you, if you've never given your life to Jesus, it starts right there. 
If you either are giving, if you feel the call right now, I want a marriage like that. I want a relationship like that. I want to be a husband and wife like that. But you've not given your life to Jesus. I'm going to invite you in a second to put your hand up. If you're in a marriage right now that could use, that doesn't look like this, but you want it to be, I'm going to invite you to put your hand up right now. If you're in a marriage right now that's not as loving as you want it to be, but you want it to be, and you know you can't do it on your own, and you want God to come in and start doing something that you can't do on your own, I'm going to invite you to put your hands up. Church, would you just keep your eyes closed? But if that's you, if you're looking for, if you're ready to commit to Christianity, to invite Jesus into your life, just put your hands up right now. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. And if your marriage is in a place where you need God to come and intervene and you're wanting more of his Holy Spirit on you, would you just begin to put your hands up right now too? Thank you, Father. Lord, you see the people around us. You see, God, people that are honest and vulnerable saying, God, I, I'm not the person I want to be. Come right now. If you're the person that put your hand up, I'm going to pray a prayer and I invite you to follow along in your head or out loud, however you're comfortable. But Jesus, come into my life. I have messed up. I have done it wrong. But I'm ready for a new start. I give you my life. Please be king of my life. I submit to you, Jesus. Amen, 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 amen. I don't want to leave this moment, but we have to pick up our children downstairs. Church, can we just begin to just praise and just to, just a second longer, can we just begin to thank God? Lord, we just thank you, God, for what you're doing in our church. Thank you, God, for the life that's going to come in our marriages. Thank you, God, for the healing that can happen here. Thank you, God, for moving in us, Father God. Thank you for pouring your spirit out on us afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.